1: Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 167
0: recorded May 24th, 2014. So this is our 93rd 90s episode. As the 90s keep trucking, yes. Seems like we've been doing the 90s forever, but we keep taking these breaks to do, you know, ongoing and other little mini-series and stuff. But sure, uh, we but are chugging through it. We are chugging through it, but there was a lot of activity in the 90s. That was the heyday for Star Trek comic books, for sure. I, I agree with that. Tons of them. Different publishers, even. It's just yes. amazing. Yeah, so multiple publishers at the exact same time. So that's also kind of unique. Yes. It's the saturation,
1: which right. <laughs> may have contributed to overexposure. But right. we still love them. So.
0: Yeah. So, uh, nowadays, you know, here in the teens, whatever we call it, 2000 and teens, we do get a little bit of a franchise being published by multiple publishers, but it's still pretty uncommon. So, also back in the 90s, Terminator had a little bit of that, where Marvel had the rights to Terminator 2, and Dark Horse Comics had the rights to Terminator 1, and so they both released... Terminator franchise comic books that really had nothing to do with each other. Hmm. And that still even goes on today where right now I think Dark Horse, Dynamite, and even another publisher has the rights to Terminator and occasionally they'll all be releasing a Terminator series and something roughly around the same time. That's odd. It is weird, right? I, mean, I, I would think the publishers, the comic book publishers...
1: Would really they really want that franchise bad if they're going to be competing with two other houses, right? Who's uh, also publishing them? Weird. Yeah.
0: Unfortunately, they're not always quality. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's too bad. Some of those later Dynamite ones that that they produced uh, were just not good. Oh well, but well, they can all they can all be winners, Malvin. Right. And the newest the newest franchise to kind of throw their hat into the multiple publishers at the same time is Godzilla. So IDW currently has the rights to the Toho Godzilla and, and DC Comics just came out with a graphic novel based on the new American version of Godzilla. So, you know, right now both franchises could potentially have issues. So I don't know if DC is going to do more than just the graphic novel, but technically they could if they wanted to do some sort of mini series or ongoing. Hm. So, it's a wacky world we live in. Speaking of Godzilla, did you think Godzilla was fat? I haven't seen the movie yet, but I know Donovan has. Ah, uh, well, he's a little chunky. But I don't necessarily <laughs> think, I mean, he looks like a giant bear. Bears have, you know, all that extra kind of blubber, blubber on them. Right. So, I didn't think that he looked, you know, obese. I just thought that he looked very big. big. But so does the old you know, the rubber suit Godzilla always looked fat. And that was kind of, you know, yeah. you know he was always was a bottom rubber heavy. suit. <laughs> he was always bottom heavy,
1: yeah.
0: Right. So this one's the same thing. Uh, if any criticism I really have on the, the new Godzilla design is I'm not a big fan of his feet. Cause his feet kind of have the, like, an elephant-type foot as opposed to, like, the long talon-type foot that the oh, traditional really? Godzilla has. Huh. Well, I guess if you don't have to fit a guy's foot in there, I guess right. it doesn't have to, you know, stick out so far in the front.
1: Huh, right.
0: It's it's still going to squish you to a pancake, you know. So, does it really matter whether it's, you know, has long talons or just a little stubby foot? But to me that's the one beef I have on the on the new Godzilla design. Aside from that, I, I liked it a lot. Okay, cool. So, Donovan's quick
1: patented movie review is thumbs up. You liked yes, it. I liked it. Cool. Well, I'll see it this weekend. But for this issue, we've got two great Star Trek
0: unlimited issues. Well great they're pretty good. Hold on. Before we jump into uh, the comic book, okay. a- and speaking of Godzilla, so today is end of May 2014. They just announced that you know not only are they going to make a Godzilla 2, but they're also going to make a new Star Wars movie, and the same director is now attached. So this is like his... Godzilla was his first real movie. Now he's going to do Star Wars as his next movie, and then he's going to do Godzilla 2 as his yeah. movie after that. So it's amazing that you know a fairly new director is getting such big gigs, especially at Star Wars
1: well, in the case of the Star Wars assignment, which by the way, that is not Star Wars Eight, as you informed me before the recording it's uh it's kind of like a a side branch right. of the yearly march that we will have a Star Wars film every year, which is interesting, but the reason he got his gig on the remake of Godzilla is because of was it monsters was that a well, small budget movie yes I'd never seen that but supposedly it was really good supposedly and, it's good. I haven't seen it either right so he got that on merit I think he got the Godzilla gig on merit now he's getting it at the very least because money talks so you know it might be because they're they like monsters they like this one but money talks I mean the first weekend it was open it just raked in a ton of money and I assume it's still doing well. I haven't seen any numbers this week, and of course, it's a it's a it's the Memorial Day weekend, so it should do great numbers uh, if it's got legs. And it sounds like if you said it was, you really enjoyed it, then it must be a good film, and it
0: should do well and continue to do well for weeks to come. Right. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah, I went. I actually went and saw it a second time. Oh my gosh, you're yesterday. contributing <laughs> at the IMAX. You know, because yeah. I wanted to see it on a big screen. Sure. And, you know, it's opening day for X-Men, so I assumed that it it would be a uh, smaller. I was even surprised it was on the IMAX. I thought X-Men might have kicked it off, but it was still there, and it was pretty packed, so still doing well. Good. I'd be curious to see how the real numbers shake out here the second weekend, but uh, I was surprised on the number of people still there.
1: And was viewing it on the IMAX big screen, how was that experience compared to the first one, which I assume was on a, a normal size screen?
0: Right. I saw them both in 3D. I don't think 3D really adds anything to it, aside from you kind of get a, a vision of the scope of how big these things are when you're looking up and right. it really looks like they're out in the distance. Right. So if you're going to see it on a normal screen and you don't want to pay the 3D money, that's fine. You, you're you not going to really lose anything by watching it in 2D. But but watching it on the IMAX, on the bigger screen, on the better sound, to me that was worth it. That cool. was... That was pretty awesome to have your, you know, the theater shaking when Godzilla's screaming. Uh, Well worth it. Cool.
1: Okay, well, I will try to talk my wife into the big bucks and go with IMAX.
0: Yes. But speaking of franchises being given to relatively newcoming directors, Mm -hmm. Roberto Orky Star Trek 3. I wanted to bring that up on this podcast. That's
1: a good point. That's a very good point. Never first-time director, although obviously Orky Big Star Trek fan, obviously a big-time writer who has been involved in the first two uh, Star Trek reboot films uh, as writer. I guess it's a successful one, Sleepy Hollow, the TV series that came out last year. So right. I think they're in their second season.
0: They're in their second season.
1: I, I've seen like maybe five episodes of Sleepy Hollow. Pretty good film, or pretty good pretty good show. Uh, it just didn't hold my interest long enough to me, for me to continue watching it. But um, So he's had some good things, but... He also wrote the Spider Man movie, the second Spider Man movie that's out right now. Right. Which I enjoyed, although there are some aspects of it that I wasn't too crazy about. So not everything he creates is golden, yeah. but the fact that he's a first time director, never directed before,
0: at least that we're <laughs> that we're aware of, um, that concerns me. Right. So there's one other instance where I can think of, of a writer that's a fairly, you know, Competent writer that was given a directorial debut and I know what you're going to say. Third, a, a third um, instance of a franchise, and that's David Goyer on Blade. Is that who you were thinking I was going to say? I thought you were going to talk about Miller. Oh no, I'm not even talking about him because I Frank, know how much you, Miller. <laughs> yes, because I, I know how much you love that. Uh, what spirit? Spirit movie. Oh, that was that was a stinker. <laughs> i've never seen it but okay go ahead I, I would rather watch the the old uh they did a made for tv movie of the spirit uh yeah. starring sam jones the third who's better known for his uh flash gordon outing and uh, uh and
1: oh what's that sm- bronze man uh,
0: the bronze guy okay go ahead, go ahead the
1: bronze guy no continue
0: well anyways um no so david Gorrier wrote the first two blade movies and he yep. wrote several other comic book inspired movies. Yep. Uh, and then they gave him, you know, free reign. Alright, you've done well for us. Here, direct the third one. Yeah. And the third one was so bad. And and I think I really think it chalks up to him not really understanding how to direct a movie you know, you can do it on paper I direct movies all the time here in my head but I don't think I could go out and actually do it (laughs) (laughs) but uh, I'm just worried, I just don't want Star Trek 3 to turn out to be Blade 3 right
1: well, let's let's hope it isn't because Blade 3 wasn't that good but a part of what made Blade 3 bad is Wesley Snipes supposedly was a whack job in that production
0: right well, I think I think keeping your cast and crew happy is part of being a director. And and his ma- and Wesley Snipes one of the main things that he talks about is how much he hated David Goyer. Oh, oh really? Oh. Well, they got to the point where he where Wesley Snipes wouldn't even talk to David Goyer. He would only send him post-it notes. So everything he had to say to David Goyer had to be transmitted through a post-it note. Yeah. Uh, which yeah, is but, very childish. Well, but. yeah,
1: and he also insisted that everyone referred to him as Blade right. <laughs> during the production. And if anybody didn't call him Blade, if anybody tried to call him Wesley or something, he would ignore them.
0: Right, right. So, so he, was, it, he was he was going was, off the rails too here. I think, <laughs> from what I hear. Right, but I, I, I'm right. So there might have been multiple things going on. But anyway. I think being a first time director on a on a very big budget movie with with high expectations might not have been the best fit for that movie anyways.
1: Right. But fingers crossed, let's hope that Orky uh, turns the corner and becomes an excellent director.
0: Right. right. Wouldn't that be awesome? That That would be great.
1: I I would love that. Because if anybody knows Star Trek, (laughs) it is Orky. And even though he has been involved in some of the things you might not like in the new reboot universe... Uh, that may not be as true to Star Trek as it was in the old days, like Warp Factors. He still overall loves the franchise, and, and he does a good job with it. So let's hope right. he does that as a director.
0: Right. But we don't know how much of that was him versus how much of it was J.J. as far well, as... sure. Of course. Sure. So it would be interesting to see, and we're not going to get it with this movie either. We don't, we're don't. we never going to know how much of of his version of Star Trek made it to the screen versus how much... JJ changed it when when we're making it, so and it doesn't matter. We got, I think, two good movies out of it so far. So yep, I'm looking forward to the new one. Me too, as always.
1: But is that it? Because we got these two issues are beefy. Yes, so we got really four four stories in these two issues. Right, because again, we've got a Taz and next gen story in the same issue, in both cases.
0: Right. Yeah, so uh, I don't really have anything else. Let's just jump into it.
1: Excellent. So issue number three of Star Trek Unlimited by Marvel. Published date is April 1997. The cover features Ohura's head with a space helmet on, and her earphone is in place like it normally is uh, in the left, left ear. To her left is a shuttlecraft moving towards the reader out of a flash of light. Three yellow text boxes tell the reader... Trapped in an alien dimension. The lives of the shuttle crew are in Lieutenant Ohura's hands. Uh, Also text says, plus Star Trek The Next Generation. So the first story is titled Message in a Bottle. Creative team involves Dan Abnett and Ian Edginton, who are the writers. Penciler is Mark Buckingham. Inker Kev Sutherland. Colors by Kevin Summers. Letterer Phil Felix. Editor Tim Toohey. Editor-in-Chief Bob Harras, Starfleet Ops Chip Carter. Communication Officers Log. While charting the remote Yugen cluster, the Enterprise had encountered a curious spatial phenomenon that appears to be an entrance into a pocket universe a fraction of the size of our own. Captain Kirk is commanding the shuttle Columbus as it departs to investigate the phenomenon with Ohura, Sulu, and two more crewmen. If by some chance intelligent life exists there, they will have to contact it. From the bridge of the Enterprise, Spock warns the captain of sudden, unexpectedly volatile plasma activity within the anomaly. Too late, as the communications with the shuttle are lost, as expected when they enter the entrance to the pocket universe. Past the entrance, the Columbus is traveling through a conduit with turbulent ribbons of energy moving all around them. It's a rough ride. Kirk speaks to Uhura about her special assignment on the mission to monitor all communication channels looking for transmissions indicating intelligent communication. When found, she is to figure out how to understand the language used in the communication to allow them to speak to the inhabitants of the pocket universe, if there are any. Uhura points out the difficulties in understanding a language developed by intelligence that evolved in total isolation from the universe they are from. Kirk says he has every confidence in her ability to crack the code. When suddenly the shuttle is rocked. Kirk falls back and hits his head. He's out cold. Nurse Chapel reports the captain will be out until they get back to the Enterprise for treatment. Crewman Corman says with the captain out, they should abort the mission. Sulu reminds him they cannot turn around and depart until they reach the end. He is also reminded that since Sulu is only on the mission as a pilot, Uhura is next in line for command of the mission. Uhura asks Corman if he has any problem with that. He says he does not. Since they cannot turn around, Uhura commands that they stay on course and complete the mission. She orders Nurse Chapel and Mr. Corman to take a seat and buckle up to avoid any more accidents. Mr. Corman is not happy. Finally, they exit the tunnel and enter the pocket universe. Mr. Corman reports biometric readings that are off the scale, but how could this place have what is needed to support life as we know it? Sulu points out that the life here might not be life as we know it at all. Uhura reports a large object ahead that is transmitting quantum chatter similar to what she detected earlier. Corman tries to rein on her parade by asking why they are not turning around and heading back. Ahura tells him they are going to stay and complete their mission, since they have come this far. The captain would want it that way. They establish contact with the Enterprise, and Mr Spock confirms that they should return with the captain based on Nurse Chapel's discretion, but in the meantime gather all information practical before their return. With that confirmation, Uhura directs Sulu to make for that large object emitting the quantum chatter. After analyzing the large crystalline object and others like it, Uhura comes to the conclusion that these large crystalline structures are operating like parts of a mammalian brain. This entire place is the life form. She is delighted with their discovery. Sulu reports that another quantum burst is on its way inexplicably, he suggests they all get into EVA suits and move outside of the ship right away. They do so with Kirk in tow in what looks like a photon torpedo casing. Soon afterward, a plasma flare happens to envelop the shuttle and incinerates it. They are on their own now, with only their suits for life support. Sad, worried, and unsure what to do next... Uhura tries to explain away what might have been an attack on the shuttle by the pocket universe entity. They move towards the nearest cluster, and when there, Corman takes the opportunity to blame their situation completely on Uhura. She should have had them leave while they had the chance. A short time later, Uhura makes for the primary cluster at the heart of the anomaly. She is going to attempt to use the next quantum pulse as a carrier wave to get an SOS to the Enterprise. Uhura attempts to communicate with the entity, but ends up being enveloped into it. In the next quantum pulse issued out of the entity, a signal is indeed carried to the outside world and the Enterprise. However, this is a more complex signal than Uhura planned to send. On the Enterprise, the on-duty communications officer recognizes the signal as five transporter signals. They funnel the signal to the transporter pad, and five people materialize on it. It's Uhura and her team with the still-unconscious Jim Kirk. Later, while staring out a view window with Nurse Chapel, Uhura explains that she and the entity were able to reach out to each other on a very simple level and be aware of each other's presence. She has started to work out a rudimentary vocabulary, some day she hopes to communicate with it in more meaningful ways. Corman approaches O'Hara with something to say.
0: The end. What do you think he was going to say? That she's uh she's a silly woman and she shouldn't be in command. Exactly. She's a female. Or do you, Come or on, do you think he learned his
1: lesson. <laughs> of course he learned his lesson, but thank God they did not bore us with it.
0: <laughs> you weren't impressed?
1: What Quite frankly, the whole story was a stinker. I didn't like it. And the artwork was inconsistent and sort of really bad in parts. The script was forced. It just seemed like they did so many things that made little to no sense to make certain that certain things that needed to happen for the story they wanted to tell happened. So I, I'm, just, I'm just not crazy about it. And I can give you many examples if you'd like them.
0: Ah, it's all right. You don't have to. Okay. So what do you think? uh, I didn't – it wasn't my favorite. And out of these four, I think it's my least favorite.
1: It's definitely my least favorite. Now, I like seeing Ohura in command. That's cool. But, um, nah. But I I
0: thought that was a little forced, though. Yeah. Oh, well, that's one of my forced items. Yeah, so you have somebody that isn't – you know, he is in command of the Enterprise – Often. Yes. And then, just because the story dictates it, oh, I'm just a pilot. Exactly. It's so, all her.
1: Right. Exactly. That, 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 is, that is one of the items on my list that is forced and makes no sense. Right. But is done just to get her in command. Agreed.
0: Yeah, I, was, I wasn't the biggest fan of that part. No.
1: And the fact that you can't turn around when you're in it? Really? <sighs> it's that narrow that you can't turn around? And you can't get any signals to the Enterprise when you're going through the conduit, but somehow when you are in the pocket universe, you can? Really? That made no sense. Anyway, I could go on, but I won't.
0: Right. Not the best one, but uh, the the whole one-way thing I thought was interesting. And I thought it was interesting as far as once they were there, you know, then they could communicate. I, I... I could buy that, and there was a thirty-minute delay. That part to me kind of made sense because you didn't really know. I, I disagree. <laughs> I think the whole. I think all of those things don't make sense. Well, well, you don't know how narrow this little wormhole. I mean, because cause when you're going oh, through the wormhole, gosh. like let's just take that as an example, the Deep Space Nine wormhole. You don't ever see them turning around midway and going back the other way. It is you go through the wormhole, and then if you want to come back, you turn around and go back the other way. So okay. I, I kind of bought the whole one-way thing. And then, I, and then as far as the communication thing, they just didn't – I don't know. You didn't know how far away they were. It had to travel through – I mean if they were really in another dimension, if they sent a the communication, it has to go through the same wormhole thingy t- to get to the other side to make it to the Enterprise. And, and to me, that kind of made sense too that it wouldn't be instantaneous.
1: Well, what, Not instantaneous is one thing. The fact that you can't be in communication when you are in the conduit, but you can when you are on the other side of the conduit, but you still have to go through the conduit for the signal to get going either way, No, it didn't make
0: sense. All right. I'll give you that one. Uh, <laughs> I, no. Anyway. Yeah. But, well, all right. So, yeah, why they couldn't send a message while they're going through it. I'll give you that one, though. It doesn't really make sense. Yeah. But uh, once they got there and they did the whole jump out, of the, jump out of the ship because it's about to explode. Right. No explanation given. I didn't really care for that part. No. That's and stupid. And I really did not like we could transmit pattern beam. I'm assuming they sent the coordinates. So this is where exactly where we are right now, beam is up. But still, that would be an hour what? late, right? Well, no, no. What did she send
1: to so, the... Okay, hold on. No. She, the game plan was she was going to send an SOS right back to the Enterprise. What ended up happening is... And, and by the way, she said she was able to communicate with the creature on a very basic level. They were aware of each other's presence and that they were intelligent. Each other were intelligent. Right. Now, how you leap from that to the point that somehow the entity was able to help Ahura construct a transporter that could dematerialize them turn them into a standard federation starfleet transportation signal that the enterprise could read and then complete the transporting sequence how that happened what all they were able to do is have communication you know just be aware of each other's presence i have absolutely no clue that that made no
0: sense whatsoever Okay, well I, I when I when I read a sequence of five transporter codes, I thought that meant transporter coordinates, but you're saying that the entity tran- the entity somehow dematerialized them and pushed their transporter That's what I'm saying. particles whatever it is to yes. to the transporter pad. All yes. right. Um, that's what i that's what i got out of it
1: and and by the way even if it was the way that you interpret it which is the enterprise beamed them out of there it's like really the transporter has that kind of range
0: right that's what i thought it was and i didn't like that but i don't like your your, i don't like your explanation any better Uh, they both suck (laughs) (laughs) okay we're we're all we have too many pages so
1: far we have to wrap this up quickly oh screw it let's just send five signals okay great thanks Story's over, makes no sense, but okay.
0: Right. Yeah. So it looks like she's getting crushed by the kryptonite, and then she just vanishes. <laughs> and I thought that her vanishing was supposed to kind of be a misleading to the reader that it was really a transporter effect that we don't know about yet. But you're right; it it, it is supposed to be the entity squishing her and turning her into a transporter beam somehow.
1: Yeah. That's, well, that's
0: not very. That, that's yeah.
1: He. Bad. I. I I thought she was absorbed into the crystalline thing
0: to facilitate communication, but I I, I didn't know. Right. Yeah, no, I I don't know either. And your explanation probably is the correct one, but it doesn't make any more sense than my explanation did. (laughs) I'll (laughs) agree with that.
1: I'll agree with that. Uh, So definitely we had a situation where – so there there's a pattern that is, that happens quite frequently in Star Trek or is used uh kind of often like a plot if that's the right word for it, where you take somebody who is not normally in charge uh and they may even be considered unsuitable for the t- to the task by someone who's who's around but that and then that person who's suddenly in command has to deal with some jerk that thinks they shouldn't be in command and somehow they overcome. Those obstacles and end up being hero the hero in the end right so that 's what this this pattern was. I Absolutely. mean Spock had that pattern uh, and was in that position in the Galileo seven episode right um, in of Taz data was in that position when he took over command on the Sutherland in redemption part two, and uh, now we have Ohura dealing with corman right so it's fine it's a tried and true pattern um. It's just that I think this is this is one of the most forced
0: implementations of that pattern that I've seen. Right. Yeah, and, and nobody that's gone through Starfleet should act like Corman does. Yeah, no. I mean, he's just a jerk, and he's like, well, I'm not going to listen to her because you, you're just a secretary or whatever. I mean, it's very <laughs> like what if she outranks? Yeah. You, she outranks you, and you you should be trained to to not care about that kind of stuff. But here he does. And not only that, he seems to
1: be so concerned about his own hide. Oh my gosh, we're in a pocket universe. And quite frankly, I'd be pretty scared if I was in that situation too. (laughs) Especially when the shuttle goes up in flames. But he's not acting like the intrepid explorer at all. He's just scared about his own hide and wants to go back to the Enterprise. So that's not, that's very non Starfleet Exactly. Very Although it's very human. Uh, it's very not Starfleet, what we normally see. Right. Why is she even – why did he even go? Well, he seemed to be the guy that kept on kept on working the sensors. But they never did explain exactly what his expertise was. Right. So was he a, bi- a bio- biology guy? Uh, a, a sensor reading expert? I don't know.
0: Yeah, I don't
1: either. Now, my bigger question is, why the hell was Chapel on the on the trip? Did they really expect somebody was going to get hurt? I mean, wh- I you mean, you it's mean? a good, it's a good, exactly, it's a good thing she was there because Kirk got hurt, but uh, and by the is... way, why is Kirk on the mission rather than Spock? It's a science thing, right? Yeah, wouldn't you hot. expect that Kirk would be on the Enterprise? I mean, he is the captain. You know, you shouldn't risk the guy all the time. And wouldn't you think that Spock should be on, on the science mission?
0: I don't agreed. know. Agreed. 100% agreed. Yeah. It, you, could, uh, you could have told the exact same story with, with Spock knocked out versus Kirk. Oh, completely. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, and really, there was nothing Spock really did on the Enterprise that required his scientific expertise. No. Nope. Just do the best you can. Yeah. It, it, you when you get back. Exactly. He made a command decision, you know. Okay, good. Uh, if chapel's okay with kirk not having to come back immediately complete your mission okay there you go that's a command decision which doesn't need spock's
0: science and big brain expertise right
1: anyway whatever
0: all right so what'd you think of the artwork maybe we can start with the ev suits
1: oh um okay i thought the ev suits were fine I mean they they weren't identical to Okay so the EV suits reminded me of the ones they had in Star Trek Motion picture. A little bit, yeah. yeah. Not as colorful. Not as colorful. Yeah, right, you're right. <laughs> yeah, they were quite they they were color coded. All right. Okay. Yeah, these are all silver or white, something like that. I thought they were fine, you know. Is is there something
0: No, we, you, I liked them. I, me... I I I thought they looked good. I mean, we never see the uniforms in we never see true EV suits in the Taz, so I, I was just asking what you thought, how these fit into that continuity. Well,
1: yeah. I mean, the Tholian Webb had one.
0: Yeah, oh, oh, it did, didn't it? Right. But so wasn't it kind of that mesh thing like, like they had in the Naked Time and stuff like that? Or was ye- it was it hard like this? <laughs> well,
1: um, the helmet was hard, of course, but the rest of it was uh, – it looked like, like material. Okay. And skin-tight material, I will add. Also on the Tholian Web one, where these right. look like these look like more reasonable. I mean, these look like real spacesuits. I, sure. I like this design a lot better than what they had in uh, Tholian Web.
0: Yeah, I, I like the design. I thought it, yeah. I thought it fit as far as looks wise goes, but I didn't right. think it fit necessarily with what the special effects in the '60s would have been. Yeah, that's
1: true. They look like a higher tech, better design. Quite frankly, <laughs> so a little bit of revisionism maybe in the TOS right. world.
0: Right. And then uh, ships, what did you think of the few shots of the Enterprise and the, uh, whatever the name of this The Columbia, shuttle. wasn't it? Columbia.
1: Or something like that.
0: Colum- I think the shuttle looked fine. Oh, Columbus?
1: Was it Columbus? Well, whatever. I think the Columbus looks fine.
0: Right. It, it's very consistent with the Galileo and the actual ones we saw. Exactly. There. So that's fine.
1: And then the Ener- I let me, let me take a look again. I don't... I remember the Enterprise looking fine.
0: I thought the Enterprise looked great. That was yeah. one of the the highlights of the book for me is that uh, it's like a page and a half spread there on the second, right. third page. Right, the first time thought, you see it. You I know. thought it was really nice.
1: Yeah. And you've got a little bit of like uh, like red light shining against uh, at least part of the Enterprise, I think. Right, you know, from that was the, From the anomaly. From the anomaly, right. That was nice. Now, I will also say, though, as far as people's faces, it's exceedingly inconsistent. There are some really nice shots of a her where she looks like Nicole Nichols. Nice job done, uh, especially when she was kind of in her space suit and kind of worried, like, oh, crap, <laughs> the the shuttle just burned up. What, the, what are we going to do now? I thought that really did a nice job of conveying that emotion, and it did right. look like Nichelle Nichols. But then there are other panels where I don't know what they thought when they were drawing Kirk in some of these panels, but it looks horrible. <laughs> I mean, some of the panels, Kirk looks like Kirk. Other ones, he just looks like a totally different guy.
0: Right. What right. do you think? I agree with you on Kirk, and then the Nichelle Nichols, the Ahura ones. There's one shot that they repeat, like, over and over again, and it's the one where she's kind of looking down and has the earpiece in her hand, and she looks like she's smirking or smiling or something. Uh, the pages aren't numbered, but the first time you see it is right after they enter the... The pocket dimension and you see all the kryptonite floating around right she's like contacting spock or whatever she yeah she says hold that thought lieutenant she has that weird face it doesn't quite <laughs> look like it doesn't look like uh it doesn't look like a horror yeah and she has that weird smirk and then if you turn the page not the opposite page but the actual next flip of the page yeah she has the exact same look where it says well, later yeah so she's smiling is it supposed I think, to be a smile? I think it's a
1: smile because she's in she's in both cases she's stoked about what they're discovering, you know, the the right. joy of discovery.
0: Okay. Now, but you're right,
1: it's the exact same picture.
0: But now float a few pages where she's getting crushed by the kryptonite and she has the exact same face. Oh, so let me look. don't tell me she's didn't still smiling.
1: That. Let me look. I didn't notice. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, again,
0: um, I, I don't think she's
1: being squished. This is well. So awesome. I don't think she's being squished. It looks like she's I think, being squished. I think she. Well, no, she seems to be falling into the crystalline, crystalline entity and making communication with it. Uh. So I think that's again, you know, the, the joy of discovery and, and making co- first contact with this uh, with this creature. I think that's what she's smiling about.
0: Yeah. Well, I think I was thinking that the artist just really liked that that point of view. And just drew it three times, or <laughs> just use
1: the same damn thing. <laughs> just you know, get the Xerox going. Copy and paste. Exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, I'll buy that. Maybe it's the uh, the joy of discovery. But well, the first two definitely are, it and doesn't I th- look right. Okay, in my opinion, it doesn't look like her.
1: It's weird. Well, okay. Thing. So whether it looks like her or not, it it, it kind of does, but it's not the best example of where they got it right. I'll agree with that.
0: All right, that's it. Yeah, okay, that's it for, for me, too. So I so, hear rumor that there's a Next Generation story in this, too? I think you're right about that.
1: Speaking of Next Generation rumors, somebody was talking to the actress that played Troy. Uh, What's her name again?
0: Amelia uh, Surtis. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah.
1: Mer- Marina Surtis That's Yeah. And they were asking her about rumors that there might be a next gen reboot, but it would be a TV show. And if and ask what she thought about that possibility, and she said, "Well, we're all too old, so we'll have nothing to do with it. But if I had my choice of who would play my character now, then she had given an actress's name, Mila Kunis. Oh yeah, which is like, oh, yeah, I can see that. She has kind of a a dark look to her. You know, maybe somebody from a different country." And uh, so I just thought the main point of that is just the idea that they're – I'd be kind of interested. I definitely – I think we said this before. Definitely want to see a Star Trek TV show. But the fact that they would make a next-gen reboot out of a TV show is kind of interesting. Right. Uh, I'm not sure that that's my number one way to go, but
0: that's kind of interesting. Uh, I would rather them go – it is interesting. uh, But I would rather them go with creating – a story set still in the J.J. Abrams Taz time frame, yeah, and kind of do like like what you know. I thought Next Generation and Deep Space Nine kind of did a good job. You can kind of set things up in the movie, and then they can play out, you know, on a s on the small screen. You know, the years following, yep, and uh, and vice versa. Uh, Marvel's kind of doing that now with Agents of Shield, so. Um, I'd rather see that than a, a Next Generation reboot. So would I. And if you would take a look at the long game, what you would
1: think you'd want to do is milk the Taw's reboot as long as you can in the J.J. Abrams universe. And then when the actors – they're all pretty young, though. It could take a long time. You know, when the actors maybe, – maybe people get kind of sick of that. Then you do the Next Gen reboot to be in the movies. Right. Um, that's what I think. Would, right. be, would yeah. be more interesting.
0: I, I would think that their contracts running out and them wanting to do other things is going to happen well before they get
1: too, too old. old or yeah.
0: before people want to stop yeah. seeing them. Right.
1: So, so I see that better being a better approach for the movies, and I agree with you being more creative in seeing something happen in the TV land. Right. Like Captain Wharf. Why not? <laughs> but that's really not what we just talked about, right? Or at least not your preference in staying in the, the J.J. universe. Right. Okay, fine. Let's go on with the second story, shall we? Please. All right. Second story is titled Sins of the Fathers. The writer, again, is uh, Dan Abnett and Ian Edginton. Penciler, Ron Randall. Inker, Al Williamson. Colors by Kevin Tinsley. Letterer, Phil Felix. Editors Bobby Chase and Mark Panacea. Editor-in-Chief Bob Haras. Captain's Log. The Enterprise has been dispatched to Odina, where centuries of ethnic feuding between the two principal tribes, the Ulan and the Drenai, has led to misery and privation. They have finally asked for help from the Federation. Shuttles have been ferrying down much-needed relief supplies. The more daunting task is to mediate the negotiations between the two warring factions and find a solution to the conflict. Riker leads an away team to the surface, where they will deliver relief supplies to a Drenai refugee camp. The away team see the effects of prolonged ethnic cleansing on the Drenai, who apparently are doing the same genocide back to the Erlan people. They approach some of the Drenai, who immediately pull out old-fashioned projectile Guns and start blasting. The surprised Riker orders everyone back to some nearby rocks as bullets go whizzing past them. Jordy and Riker are behind one rock while Dr. Crusher and Nurse Ongawa the other. They take the attackers down one by one with phasers set to heavy stun, but one is able to lob a grenade before they go down. Crusher dives towards it and launches it into the air where it explodes from a better location to spray the entire landing party with shrapnel. No, just kidding. No one is touched by the explosion. Riker finds a crate loaded with old directed energy weapons of Federation, Klingon, Romulan, and Cardassian manufacture. The attacker who lobbed the grenade is a young female who has a serious head injury when she hit her head on the weapons crate after being stunned. They will beam her to sickbay for treatment. Meanwhile, from his ready room on the Enterprise, Picard speaks to Ambassador Kane of the Erlan. She accuses the Federation of covertly supplying weapons to the Drenai. Picard objects and explains the relief supplies originated from the Barusa, where apparently Drenai sympathizers slipped in the weapons crate with the real relief supplies. Picard offers to arbitrate negotiations to end the bloodshed. The ambassador laughs and tells Picard there can be no arbitration between the two parties as irreconcilable as the Erlan and the Drenai. She calls the Drenai religious zealots that only recognize one way of life driven by their faith. It was their stifling extremism that sparked the creation of the Erlan's industrial ethic, which believes in community and toil, not invisible gods. The ambassador says... They split with the Drenai, and the wars began shortly thereafter. The aid mission may have caused a lull in the fighting, but after Picard leaves, the fighting will resume. Picard angrily states he refuses to believe the only future for Odina is mutually insured destruction. She shouts back the Federation cannot tell them how to live or die. They all believe in what they're doing. The conversation ends with Picard stating that some of the refugees want an end to the fighting, and that maybe the leadership is misleading them. The ambassador says he is being misled by people, and on Odina there is no such thing as an innocent bystander. Meanwhile in sickbay, Dita of the Draenei Fist Resistance sits up in her bed. Dr. Crusher explains they had to bring her up to the ship to heal her head wound. Dita passionately makes her case to Dr. Crusher about how there can be no peace until all the godless Erlan are dead. She says they mind their roads, poison their crops, slaughter their cattle. They even take children from the Drenai and sterilize them to prevent the birth of the next generation of fighters. Dita continues and explains that the Irland's population was declining due to their fertility being adversely affected by fallout exposure from earlier wars. Their population is starting to recover, but to even the numbers, they embarked on the sterilization program. Dr. Crusher is shocked and asks if she can run some more tests on Dita. Meanwhile, on Odina... The perimeter of the Draenei refugee camp is now fortified with an energy fence and armed Starfleet guards. As Worf, Riker, and Geordie discuss the unfortunate need for such measures, Draenei fighters sneak out of a secret hatch in the ground within the perimeter of the fence with some kind of device. Dr. Crusher completes Dita's tests and goes to the bridge to inform Picard of some important results. Meanwhile, on the bridge, Data is playing footage of an attack on an Erlan refugee camp by a Starfleet shuttle that was commandeered by the Drenai. Data cannot shut the shuttle down remotely. Ambassador Kane contacts Picard and angrily states, It is plain that Picard and the Federation are supporting the Drenai. The Erlan considers all Starfleet personnel in Erlan territory enemies, that will be attacked on sight. Dr. Crusher enters the bridge, with Dita wanting to speak to the ambassador. She does so and states that the camps that are sterilizing the female Drenai, are also harvesting their eggs and using them to breed Erlan children that will end up fighting and killing their own parents. The ambassador says that is true. But when the Draenei used prohibited weapons on the Erlan that sterilized them, the Erlan was more than justified to use their own genetic material against them. Crusher says they are more than genetic material, they are people. Crusher has a revelation and asks Ambassador whether the Erlan people know about this program of stealing children. The Ambassador says they do not and do not need to know. Irlans are defined by their beliefs in their system of government, which will be defended to the death. Crusher says the practice has been going on for so long that their genetic makeup has mixed to the point that biologically there is no separation between the Erlan and Drenai people. They are one people who are killing each other. This is not genocide, it's suicide. Picard says he is appalled by this. He will stop that shuttle one way or the other. Then they will discuss the situation further. The communications is terminated. Riker and Worf are piloting two shuttles that are in pursuit of the single shuttle stolen by the Draenei. They try to force it down, but its proximity to the Erlan population centers makes them hold their fire. The resourceful Draenei pilot is able to ignite her vented plasma to gain a lead on her pursuers. Geordie recognizes a serious energy buildup in the stolen shuttle. It has a dirty bomb, and if that bomb goes off in the traveling shuttle over the nearby densely populated Erlan capital, the death toll will be huge. Data suggests that if they use the Enterprise's phasers, they will be powerful enough to vaporize the shuttle and the bomb it carries. It is the only way to save the Erlan capital and the people therein. Picard begrudgingly orders Data to do it, but Dita pleads with Picard to let her try to talk to Kurella, the pilot of the stolen shuttle. Picard allows it. Data is successful by explaining that Corella would be killing their own children that the Erlan had taken for their own. Later, Picard records in his log that since the release of the truth to the general population of both sides, that the Erlan and Drenai are essentially the same people a reconciliation of a sorts has begun. It is a start.
0: The end. I liked and didn't like this story. What yeah. about you? Um mostly I, like i like this story um but right. go ahead I, i'll let you finish your thought I, I like the story i mean in the
1: fact that it tries to be a parable of our times so right. it looks like this is basically israel and palestine between the erlan and the, the Jurnai more or less so in a long tradition of basically taking a situation in the modern day and adapting it to the Star Trek universe. Uh, I, I, did, I did like the story from that standpoint. But I also have problems with it. But
0: I really liked the, um, the, the whole genetically modifying the, the children. I thought that was actually kind of interesting. My only problem is that I don't buy that it would suddenly get people to stop fighting. I completely agree. Right there.
1: Because how often, I mean, our own civil war. So in the U.S., civil war, you know, we're the same people. I mean, more or less, mostly of European origin. And we fought each other, no problem. Uh, right. And we're the same genetic code. So, you know, it's easier to fight somebody that looks different from you, but it still doesn't stop you from fighting.
0: No, of course not. I mean, and if you really look at it, they're... they're Inhabitants of the same planet, right? So, mm-hmm. but they're supposed to be two different races, or two? Di- are they supposed to be two different races or two different species? Because they look alike.
1: <coughs> well, so, they definitely
0: do now. But okay, but so you're if, saying maybe before they looked different? Maybe one had horns well, and the other one didn't. Uh, it,
1: well, hold on. <laughs> I'm not saying horns. I think you're being a little ridiculous here. I mean, the different races. Uh, it. it if they did look a lot different in the past, I think they would have noticed over the years as they started looking like each other. Right. Unless they, they were never exposed to each other. Uh, but you're seeing the, these you – know, what, Dita? And then you see the ambassador. They look the same. Right. I mean, way the same. They almost look the same people. The dark hair and then the what, light purple skin and whatever. Anyway, I don't think they were that much different from a look standpoint – but now, biologically, supposedly, they're identical. So, like, whatever. Or at least as identical as anybody's going to get. Right. So, I I don't know the exact uh, scientific, biological <laughs> word to use. Although, you, you put some good ones forward. But they apparently were different enough, biologically, that it made some kind of difference to them. I guess. Right. I guess, too. Yeah, but, yeah.
0: Right. So, the only part I really liked was... One race, one species, whatever it is, became sterile due to a dirty bomb of some sort. And then now they're harvesting the eggs. I thought that was actually an an interesting plot point. It was. It was uh, unexpected. And to me, that was the highlight of the story. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I thought it was a little too pat at the end because – because I mean, it really, it's not—they're not fighting because they're different people. Supposedly, they're fighting because they have different beliefs. Exactly. And if completely. your beliefs are different, it doesn't matter whether you come from the same family or from different species. You, you're fighting that, that thought process, that exactly ideology. <clears throat> yep. Um, so, and, and I didn't think of the Civil War, but that's that's spot on. That's a, a good analogy. Yep.
1: Okay. So we liked. I think we liked and disliked the same things.
0: I don't think you liked the grenade part
1: all that much. Okay. <clears throat> that battle scene, I thought that was well drawn. Right up until the point that <laughs> that Crusher is able to throw the grenade in the air. <laughs> you know, I, I think the way you're supposed to do that is you want to th- lob it like away from you, but not in the air, so that know rocks or vegetation or something can give you some protection <laughs> from the shrapnel that's going to be flying it you know in every direction when that thing right. goes off so
0: yeah I, and i like how far she threw it i mean she chunked she hurled it. it yeah and then they make that little joke about the baseball team but uh yeah i, I don't know I, I thought the grenade when the grenade fell out of her hand and I'm like, oh, well, this is what the story's going to be about. She's about to jump on it to save everybody else. And then the story will be about her, you know, getting put back together by ah! the nerves. <laughs> you know, I, I, was, I was really going that way. That, you know, it would be kind of like she's going to be fighting for her life this issue. And then right. the next page she just throws it over the shuttlecraft. And I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> that's not where they're going at all.
1: No, no, they're going where Crusher, in a burst of adrenaline, being able to save everybody. So that's that's nice. I just think it's I think it's BS where she ended up throwing it. But whatever.
0: <laughs> I did like how when they cracked open that case, you can see. Um, oh yeah, uh federa- yeah. phaser there. Yep, Type Two phaser. Love it. Love it. Yeah, that, I thought that was really cool. A nice, I like little, that. nice little Easter egg.
1: Exactly. Nice little nod. I also really like that top panel. Uh, again, I don't, these, I don't think these have numbers. They don't, unfortunately. But it is the second page of the fight. At the top of the page, Riker and Geordie are behind a rock that right. explodes because some pretty massive projectile hit it. <laughs> and it goes, ka right.
0: I love that panel. That looks so cool. Yeah, it reminded me a lot of, like, you know, uh, Sergeant Rock and, and the ah. other type uh, uh-huh. World War Two comics. Right. I mean, it, this looks like a pretty heated dogfight for these few pages.
1: Yeah, I, I, I like that part. I really liked it up until the grenade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Riker's, you know, the look on Riker's face and his hair is actually messed up, which doesn't happen often. I think it looks very cool.
0: Right. No, I agree with you. I liked it. I thought that was a pretty action-packed few pages.
1: Yeah. I also kind of liked that little lizard on the opening page when they're on the planet. Right, the little green guy with the black spots? Exactly. So I'm looking at this using a PDF reader. So I'm scrolling downward as I'm reading it. And as I'm scrolling down, I notice the little snake head. (laughs) <laughs> and the bottom. And it's like, hey, look, it's a little snake. And I keep on scrolling down. It's like, oh, it's got legs. And it's got a fat body. Oh, it's a lizard. Okay. At least it's, it's a, a lizard snake.
0: it's a little type thing. Oh, what, what was that? Like a little Brontosaurus type dinosaur. Oh, yeah, like
1: a little, okay. a tiny dinosaur. Oh, there you go. Yeah, right. Exactly. It does Cute. look like that now that you mention it. So it's got a really long neck and a small head. So it basically has the the head and neck of a snake and the body of a lizard. Right. Or Brontosaurus, I would... That also would be acceptable. I A think.
0: tiny one. A tiny one, yes. So I like okay. that. So that's kind of cute. Right. So on that same page, did you think that was Troy? Because I did. The nurse. Uh, oh, Ngawa. Ngawa or I Ogawa. Was... Ogawa.
1: I didn't think she was Troy. I just thought she was just some, some random landing party person. And I completely, I assume the next thing you're going to say is she does not look
0: Asian at all. <laughs> Uh, Not in that picture. She does a little bit later.
1: Yeah, but she's got like uh, she's she's got kind of brown hair. I mean, there's black parts too, but it looks like it's brown hair. Right. And Agawa was uh, I think was was she supposed to be Japanese? Yeah. She she was definitely Asian and you know jet black hair, short jet black hair, and uh, a Japanese looking lady. And at least in the first panels, you see her. She does not look Asian, but then eventually. She looks a little bit more Asian on the second page, or second or third page. Well, wait. third
0: page when she's when she's checking out the the girl's head wound. Right, that's, that's the first time she kind of looks like the
1: actress. Right. So, I thought that was interesting. Uh, yeah, no,
0: I, I really thought that was Troy. I thought, oh, this is season seven when Troy's wearing the the uniform. Well, did she, did I, she, I I she ever have to wear that shorts? Not really, but I thought, well, maybe she has it up. You know, I didn't – I'm just reading it, and I thought, oh, Troy, First, interesting seeing her in the uniform. I didn't really realize she didn't have enough pips. Yeah. And then he calls her Ogawa, and I'm like, oh, okay. Well, that makes more sense. Right.
1: I I assume half of the team were made up of medical people because of uh, the potential uh, treatment of the refugees.
0: Right. I would assume so.
1: Yeah. Of course, why Jordy's down there, why they need an engineer, I'm not quite sure, but... Cool.
0: So, so that he can recognize the weapons. I don't know. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, but isn't it Riker that finds the weapons? Or, uh... um, I was just kidding. Okay.
0: So what did you think of the big dogfight? Uh, the shuttlecraft dogfight? Well, I
1: kind of liked that. It was kind of cool.
0: Uh, yeah. they, they, they don't normally
1: talk about those really tiny shuttles, those next-gen shuttles, as being equipped with, with phasers very often. But they sure are here, and right. uh,
0: and they're doing the dogfight thing. Yeah, and it reminded me a lot of uh, Nemesis. Yeah, was it was it Nemesis that had no insurrection that had that big dogfight with uh, Picard and Worf and the captain's yacht and Data and the shuttle shuttlecraft, singing and stuff, right? When that insurrection? I I don't remember a dogfight with the captain's yacht. It wasn't really a dogfight, but it was a space chase like this, and they were trying to get Data to um, stop, and they end up going like upside down and attaching to the, the roof of Data's ship. Remember now? Pretty I sure. Don't think,
1: I don't think that was an Insurrection, but maybe it was. Okay, maybe. I I, it was. I, got to, I don't remember that, but
0: <laughs> I'm old. Memories going bad. Anyways. I didn't like the the, the way that uh, Insurrection or Nemesis, whichever one it was, dogfight ended with the ships attaching like they did. But this one I thought was pretty good because they they acknowledged they could destroy her at any time, but they didn't want to. Although, if she's killing this many people, they should have just gone ahead and did it. Right. Because how many people died because they were like, oh, I don't want to kill anybody. And yet she's just mowing people down with those. Exactly. Exactly. You know, you don't want to kill anybody. That's always your last resort. But if right. they're killing other people... You got to you gotta take them out.
1: You got to take them out. That's all that's doing.
0: Right. And this just reminds me a little
1: bit about Next Gen. Usually when they showed shuttlecrafts, they showed those really tiny ones, which is what they're using here. Right. And I always just wondered, it's such a massive ship. Why are they always using these tiny ones all so the time? So they
0: have like a whole fleet of them inside there.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: They only got but- so much room.
1: Right, but they obviously have runabouts. They've had runabouts here and there, right. and they're using runabouts also in getting the supplies down.
0: So. Right. I don't know. I don't know. I like. There's a video game called Star Trek. Um. Oh, what is it called? Invasion. I think it is. Yeah. And and in it, it it's uh, the Enterprise D. Michael Dorn, Patrick Stewart play Orphan Picard. Right. And in it, one of the plot points is that they've retrofitted a lot of the shuttlecraft to be fighter craft, and so they've and so like part of the game or most of the game is you learning how to yeah to,
1: yeah, and, yeah then, and war and wharf is training you on how to do the dogfighting right exactly.
0: Yeah. Which I always thought was a really cool idea. I, was like, I thought that cause, was. too. Just think about it. They just opened the bay and then launched out all those little crafts that had <clears throat> you know phasers and photon torpedoes in the whole nine yards. You know they could have you know the dogfights and stuff that we see in like Star Wars and things, and, and maybe those would be more effective than you know just the big, the big ships just pounding away at each other with unlimited shields. <laughs> right. I, I I like the
1: excitement from a story standpoint of having fighters in the mix too. I think that's pretty right. cool. Right. So, yeah, I I played that game. Okay. And that was a it, it was a good game. Although I gotta admit, I kind of stopped at some point. I, mean, I, I really too. I didn't got, go
0: that far with it. It got too hard. <laughs>
1: what? I, I think... just was
0: I could, I guess I wasn't <clears throat> picking it up fast as fast as they expected me to. So I got to a point where I just like I can't I can't beat this board. So I quit. <laughs>
1: they made a big deal about uh, fighting in air you know close to the ground as opposed to space battles and it's like okay and uh, yeah okay well
0: enough of that but yeah I played the same game okay yeah I talked to a lot of people Star Trek fans and even video game fans and they don't know that game I thought it was kind of one of those you know because it didn't do very well that that a lot of people didn't know about it
1: yeah well random chance I happened to play the same one
0: cool yeah.
1: That was about the time period also where I was playing uh, Elite Force and those kind of things too, which I was enjoying. Right. Um, then I got out of it. Okay, so shall we go on to the next Thrill Pack issue?
0: Yeah. The next one is issue number four of Star Trek Unlimited, released May 1997 by Marvel Comics. Again, broken up into two stories. The first one is entitled None But the Brave. This is a Taz-era story. Writer is Dan Abnett and Ian Edkinton. Penciler is Mark Buckingham. Inker is Kev Sutherland. Colorist is Kevin Somers. Letterer is Phil Felix. And then Chip Carter, Tim Tuhi, and Bob Harris. Tal Shiar wannabes. It's a little hard to read the, the because there's a picture in the middle, so it's kind of some of the, uh, the names didn't quite line up to what, what their role was. All right, so the cover of this issue is Next Generation, even though the first story is Taz. So, but we'll go ahead and go over it real quick. Can Geordie LaForge and Dr. Leah Brahms unlock the secret of a hundred-year-old starship? If not, they're dead. Plus, eh, the original series. So the artwork on the cover shows a season seven uniformed Geordie standing underneath the engineering section of a classic Taz Constitution class starship. And to the left of to the to his left, there's a close up of a Romulan male's face, and then another close up of a human woman, and presumably this is Dr. Brahms. And then underneath that we see maybe five Uh, Romulan starships so the story starts off with a female Romulan commander in command of a Romulan bird of prey she happens to be the sister of the commander from the classic episode the Enterprise incident and she's hot on the trail of Captain Kirk and the Enterprise finally she thinks to herself she'll be able to avenge her sister's honor The Romulans and the readers are both curious as to why the Enterprise is so close to the Neutral Zone. Elsewhere, well within the Neutral Zone, a Romulan shuttle filled with Starfleet personnel slip through a Romulan armada. None of the other ships suspect that their hated enemies are disguised as one of their own. The shuttle lands inside of a base built inside of an asteroid or a moon of some sort. One of the crew on the shuttle is none other than Montgomery Scott. We learn that this is a Starfleet mission and that they are only borrowing Scotty since they're going to need some of his miracle worker skills, freeing a captured engineering section of the USS Confederate. The commandos make it to the ship. Now the newly mustached Scotty must perform a miracle to cold start the engines and make their escape. Elsewhere, the Enterprise is still causing a diversion on the other side of the neutral zone. Scans now show that there are four cloaked Romulan vessels following closely. Kirk and Spock discuss the situation with Commodore Foley, who is in command of this operation. Spock suggests that this is not a simple asset retrieval as she had originally told them. Spock points out that the distance that the Confederate went in the short time after its maiden voyage started just does not add up commodore foley then comes clean she tells them that the confederate was configured with an experimental propulsion system it went haywire early in its testing the saucer section was able to make its escape but the engines went to warp and then reverted into normal space well within the neutral zone she also tells them that the commandos have been ordered to destroy the confederate if Scotty is unable to bring the engines online. This is a shock to Kirk and the rest of the Enterprise crew. On board the Confederate, Scotty is able to get the shields up. They seem strong enough to withstand the firefight that the Romulans are giving while inside the hangar. He is working on the engines when he notices the heavy modifications. He recognizes them as a design of something that Virgil Brahms was working on years ago. He says that Virgil stopped working on them when he realized the danger that these engines would pose. The commando leader named Craig confirms this. Scotty is outraged, but he works on getting the ship running so that they can make their escape and also so that the Romulans would not have a device that could potentially destroy the space-time continuum. The Confederate makes its departure from the station. The Romulan ships are in close pursuit. But Scotty is able to get a low warp field and they are able to make it to the rendezvous of the Enterprise just as the Confederate is starting to collapse within a spatial distortion of its own making. Scotty and the Commandos are beamed over in time and then the Confederate is lost forever. Once the ship is gone, the Romulans depart and Commander Foley and her Commando team return to her ship and the Enterprise is left to continue its five year mission the end
1: I just gotta say I am totally confused by Scotty's solution
0: which is
1: the ship is the confederates uh, engineering section or battle section whatever you want to call it is coasting because it's out of power it's done its warp to burst and now it's coasting through the the neutral zone I guess I guess they're either in the neutral zone or still in Klingon space then or Romulan space sorry And then we've got the Enterprise being chased by all these other ships. I thought they were in two physically different places, the Confederate and the Enterprise, so they couldn't get close enough to tractor them across because they would then go into Romulan space. I think they said that. Then suddenly, Scotty does his his futson, with this accelerator thingy and then suddenly they're within transporter range
0: and okay and that that took me by surprise see i thought that they were he was able to make it because they go to warp two yeah and then i thought that he was just able to outrun them but he did do something to the ship right at the end to cause the spatial distortion that it then got sucked into right i agree with that so but I, thought, I either, thought he just made it close enough for them to be, but, but maybe you're right.
1: Well, okay, so yes, it's possible that maybe the Enterprise and five warbirds, or whatever they call them, are all hanging out in the neutral zone, and the Confederate is coming to them, right? right? But it's still in Romulan space, and Kirk is not going to go into Romulan space they're They're not close enough to being able to tractor them out. I thought they were further away from each other, but maybe maybe the transporter has a better range than tractor beams. I don't know. I just thought they were too far away, or maybe part of Scotty's futzen to get it into the the fractured universe or whatever it ended up going into actually did give it some some thrust that got it close enough. I don't know right it just seemed it just seemed confusing,
0: right. And also maybe a little confusing to me was what exactly happened to it once the Commandos and Scotty were off of it. Because when I first kind of read through it, I thought that, you know, especially the visual, it looks like it's being fractured into different pieces and that it's like maybe going into an altered dimension or something to do with the space-time continuum. But (laughs) I could also read it, if you just read the words, it kind of sounds like, it didn't really go anywhere. It's still there. It's, exactly. It has all that ele- electricity bouncing off of it. And that – because Kirk even says, let's see, let's, let's see them tow that home. Right. Which, right. which, to me, that doesn't make sense because you're going to let them get it back, you know. Well, that somewhat. was sarcasm. That, that was sarcasm. Right. So, but, uh, so obviously – Is it still there
1: or did it go away? Well, what they say, it's collapsing into a spatial rift – It's in a spatial rift. So I think it's kind of sort of there, but not 100% in our space, dimension, whatever. So you can't get to it. Okay. So, yeah, in the end, can you even see it? They're insinuating you can see it by what they drew. Uh, Unless, of course, that that drawing, which is kind of a cool drawing, quite frankly. I kind of like it. Is that, while it's transitioning to its eventual place in the Spatial Rift, so maybe you can't see it after that's done? Or can you still see it?
0: I uh, was thinking that the, it was just a transition of it going from our universe to... to wherever. You know, ...a pocket right. universe. Or <laughs> something, right. Yeah, maybe it's going to go hit that kryptonite entity yeah. that was in last issue.
1: Right, exactly. So the main thing is they can't get to it. Where, wherever it ends up being in the Spatial Rift or whatever they're talking about, the Romulans can't get to it. And we'll see what happens in the next issue. What? Uh, What what eventually happens to it. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. Spoiler! (laughs) I'm
0: not going full with the spoiler, but... So anyway, so after reading this, I thought that it was gone, but then Kirk's little comment made it imply that maybe it was still there, and, and I wanted to get your take on it. I think the main point is, Scotty's
1: solution got it into a position where they couldn't get to it. Nobody could get to it. So,
0: Right. Whatever. Okay. Well, what would you think
1: of the story overall? Well, I liked the bold action story at the beginning, having the Starfleet commandos go in and Scotty being with them. I thought that was pretty cool. I thought it was really cool when you first see the Confederate, you know, with no saucer section and stuff. It's like, oh, cool. Okay. Okay. Well, okay. Now I know why they're on this commando mission. I mean, that makes sense they've got part of a Starfleet Constitution-class vessel. And I just thought it was just a normal one. Right, I didn't. But but it still has technologies and secrets that could tip the balance of power, so I can see why they're going for it. And then finding out about the Accelerator, I thought that was pretty cool. I thought it was way too much of a coincidence that the sister of the Romulan commander, who Spock used his. His beguiling ways on. I thought that was way too much of a coincidence. But I gotta say, they drew her really hot. I mean, she's really cute. She was cute. Man, she's cute. So, kudos to the artist. Right.
0: Yeah. No. I. I, I it sounds like we agree because I. That was the one part that I thought was. I thought was going to be a bigger plot point. The right. sister. Yeah. But really, it was just a throwaway line. Finally, I'll be able to avenge my sister. And well, then she doesn't do anything, so.
1: Well, I think the only thing that does just gives her more motivation to be on Kirk's tail.
0: Right. And that's maybe. it. Okay. Well, so. it didn't work for her. <laughs>
1: no, it didn't work out for her at all. So I love the fact that the infiltration team was using the classic phaser rifles.
0: Right. But, However, but most importantly, let's talk about most importantly first. Oh, okay. What? What do you think of that stash, man? Oh, the Scotty stash? <laughs> <laughs> it I kind of threw me off at first.
1: I thought it was fine. Well, I didn't I didn't realize it was Scotty absolutely at first. But yeah, uh see, he
0: doesn't have a stash in the show. It, well, yeah, I he only grew in that, the movie. you know, later. Yeah, exactly.
1: But they threw it in there, and I thought it was kind of cute. I thought that was
0: fine. So it, this must mean continuity that it's is not of perfect, but close to the end of their five-year mission.
1: I guess. So did he actually have the stash? So he did have the stash in the motion picture. Yeah. Okay. Okay.
0: That was our introduction to Scotty with the stash. Okay. Cool. So uh, anyway, sorry. Uh, what were you saying about the other stuff? Probably more important stuff. Oh. <laughs> My
1: only other comment on the phaser rifle was the, uh, the fact that it looks kind of small in that guy's hands, in that commando's hands. Other than that, I was, was very happy seeing it.
0: Yeah, I know you're a big fan of that one. Yeah, I like that one.
1: Although, you know, when you actually heft it, because I've, I've got a prop of that, it's really an awkward design. Is it? It's really awkward. It's got this big old long uh, emitter pipe in the front that looks like it would get in the way. And uh, anyway, it's just, it's just awkward when you actually hold it. What do you think about them using the, uh, the name Confederate for the ship?
0: Well, just because it, it automatically makes you think of Civil War and mm-hmm. the less savory aspects of what the Confederates were trying to do. I, I thought it was a little odd choice.
1: W- right. I mean <clears> – <throat> You know, the Confederate cause was not all just to keep slavery. I right. mean, first off saying that. So the Confederates are not all, you know, some, some vile, evil thing, uh, although they, they did want to continue slavery, but besides that. Right. So I just want to get that out. They're not like comic book bad guys or something, the Confederate political entity. But there is a negative connotation to it, at least to us Northerners. So I thought it was an interesting choice. So I went ahead and looked it up because I wanted to just, just make sure I understood everything. First definition, a member of a confederacy, an ally. Okay. Fine. Right. One who assists in a plot, an accomplice. Well, that's negative connotation. The supporter of the confederate states of America. Okay. Okay, so I, I'm looking for something that makes it, that has some, some reason why they would call it the confederate. And I'm not seeing anything. Because most ships, Starfleet ships, are named with, with more positive things. Or at least battle things. The Defiant, the Enterprise, you know. The Constitution, you know. I I just wondered.
0: Right. Yeah, the only thing I could think of is that, you know, because it was, you know, a covert thing. You know, maybe it was like a Section 31 type. Oh. Type covert type. Mm-hmm. Type. Type. Building of this ship, I don't know. Yeah, I'm with you. I I didn't really understand why it was called that, but I didn't maybe dwell on it as much as you did. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Well, I just, I just wondered. Anyway, good point. No, I I didn't understand it. And you know, growing up in Texas, uh, you know, it, it is weird. You know that that you know even here in the South, the the Confederate. When you think of them as far as the United States Confederacy. It's only the slavery thing that's ever really remembered. Yeah. Because um, I mean I mean well, this is this is way off track. But I remember one time my, my sister, she's quite a bit younger than me, she came home from school one day and they learned about the Civil War and she's like, Oh, I'm just so glad we won. <laughs> you know, I'm so glad we won the Civil War. And I'm like, Oh well Technically, we didn't, you know. <laughs> well, Texas. I mean, was I, Texas I, tex- was te- texas, texas wasn't wasn't in it, was it? Or was it? it? It was. It was.
1: Okay. And it was fighting for the South. It was. Well, because geographically, it is in the South, but right. so is Arizona. But Arizona wasn't involved in it. Well, I don't. But, yeah, right.
0: It, it was. It was. It's not one of the bigger ones because we don't have. A, we didn't have a lot going on here. But right. But uh, you know. You know, when they talk about the Six Flags of Texas, because I'm right. sure that's, you know, you, you've you heard of the Six Flags parks. The first one was in Texas, and it was called Six Flags Over Texas. Right. And it was to commemorate the six flags that, you know, the six countries that have been part of the what region is Texas. And, you know, one of those flags is the Confederate flag because we were part of the Confederacy at one point. Right. Okay. Just like we were part of France and Spain and all the other ones too, so. Sure. I, I do think that's funny. Every time you go to, like, Chicago, and you go to Six Flags over there. You're like, eh, it's kind of funny because this doesn't this name does not apply to Chicago at all. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Anyways, what
1: do you think about the artwork?
0: Uh, the artwork I thought was good. I mean, uh, you're right about the commander. She she was uh, not hard on the eyes. No, quite nice actually. Uh, the ships I thought looked good. I really liked the battle bridge kind of thing uh, in its little firefight with those Romulan ships. I liked the, the Romulan ships, too, because we never saw like the, the double hull type design for classic-era starships, so right. I thought that looked really cool.
1: Yeah, I thought that was a nice little bonus on that. Was that the opening page or close to the opening?
0: Um, is it on the opening they page, they too? It? I know that when, he, when they're leaving and they're blasting their way out, it shows a, a really good shot of it. Let me go to the opening oh, page.
1: That, it's not on the opening page, so it is, it's, it's at the secret base. Right. Which is not that all that far away from the opening pages, but yeah, it's like the third or fourth page, something like that.
0: Yeah, I, I Oh, agree. yeah, there, there's another one there, too. Okay, I was looking at the one where they were actually leaving. But yeah, when they're getting there, it's there, too.
1: Yeah, and by the way, I love that particular page where they're showing the covert, I guess hijacked, I don't know, um, right. shuttle. Uh, romulan shuttle they're using which by the way looks pretty retro i mean it looks like a buck (laughs) rogers thing
0: it does look buck rogers (laughs) but but then
1: lower on the page you see like a normal kind of romulan attack ship but then on the bottom correct the double hulled kind of transitionary kind of design something from the current day and something that's kind of going towards what we'll see in next gen i thought that was a nice little little extra design to throw
0: in Right. I I really like that. Yeah, me too. And you even saw a couple of the Klingon Bird of Prey looking ships. Like on uh, the next page after that, you can kind of see that they have some of the Klingon ships too. Yes,
1: that is kind of (laughs) cool. To reinforce how (laughs) the Romulans are now using Klingon design for really no good reason.
0: No good reason. So I liked it. I I, I thought that part of the artwork was great. Yeah. my biggest beef, and it's more of a continuity type thing, uh, the commandos, which are not part of the Enterprise, are all wearing the Enterprise logo. Right. Including, <laughs> including Commander uh, Foley. She right. also is wearing the Starfleet, or the, the Enterprise yeah. logo. Yep. So I was trying to rationalize it. I was like, well, this is technically late in the five-year mission, but before Star Trek The Motion Picture, maybe towards the end of the five-year mission, that logo had made its way to all ships. Because uh, right. obviously in Star Trek, the motion picture, everybody's wearing that logo. Right. But uh, I've never seen any evidence to support that, so I, I think I'm just trying to justify it. Right. So they should have had a different patch. They should, whatever that last ship is that she leaves on, they should have their own insignia. Yeah, I agree with that.
1: I agree with that. Another thing I have some concerns about with the artist work is some of the faces Many of the faces are fine; they're good, but then, especially when they're doing like emotion or something, they kind of lapse into some kind of a pseudo manga kind of comic look,
0: uh, right? Which I, I was not crazy about. I think Scotty maybe more so than the other ones because with that mustache, he his facial expressions sometimes look a little like Speed Racer ish right. looking.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. And how about uh, Kirk? Also. Because there's a spot where Kirk is. There's a little round inset on the page where the Commodore is saying, "Oh yeah," and they've got orders to destroy the ship if they can't take it. And then Kirk and and McCoy are reacting to it. It's like, right? Kirk looks terrible. Yeah, That's he looks not like Kirk.
0: a fifteen year old kid.
1: He looks like a fifteen year old kid that just got told he can't go to the prom.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it looks it. Ugh. Well, Foley also looks kind of weird in there, where she's kind of like she does. looking to the side. Yeah, I, I yeah. get it. So it, it's fine; it's all good. It's just that
1: I'm I just question some of the the drawing decisions, and then some of the commandos, the faces, especially that. What Foley was Foley the the, uh, the no, leader Foley of the was the
0: uh, Foley was the leader, the command ca- the commodore. Uh, oh, okay. Craig was
1: Craig. The, that's him. Craig sometimes looks on Craig's face is kind of odd too. Right. At times he looks a little bit like Kirk. But at other times, most times he looks—I don't know.
0: Would you he, say comic some... booky? Because you know we're reading yeah. a comic book. Just saying. well, I agree. It's just <laughs> uh... no. I hear you. I, I see what you're saying. All right. So, what'd you think of their uh, commando uniforms? So oh, I liked them. Oh, I like those. I thought they looked really good. Yeah, they're they're me- they look like they look a lot like what Kirk uh, Chris Pine Kirk wore in the most of the, the first, first Star Trek movie. Yeah, it looks like it's just a black shirt with some texture to it and then the Starfleet logo. I thought right. it was cool. I liked it a lot.
1: Yeah. And that texture there, that kind of like checkerboard, not checkerboard, but kind of like uh, like squarish kind right. of texture to it, I kind of wish there was more texture to the shirt that Pine wore. I think that would look even better. But
0: Well... The, the black undershirt? The black undershirt. Because obviously you don't mean the normal shirt, because the normal shirt has a lot of texture to it. Yeah, I'm not talking about that. I'm right. talking about his black undershirt.
1: Long yeah. undershirt. I think that would have looked cooler. Uh, yeah, that's all I have to say about this one.
0: My last comment is more of a uh, nitpick, a big nitpick. Mm-hmm. But as we saw in the original series, and I'm going off the TV shows, no expanded universe here. Mm-hmm. No woman has ever been captain. And then here, we're supposed to believe that there's a woman Commodore, which would be above Captain. So, Mm -hmm. how'd that happen?
1: Hmm. Hmm. Interesting point.
0: So I I know it's a very sexist way of thinking, because that episode was very sexist, I thought. Yes. And contrary to what Star Trek is supposed to mean. Right. But uh, if that is is canon, then, then this story does not fit that continuity. Right. Good point since I don't agree with it and that episode is so bad. <laughs> okay. All right, and then lastly, uh I thought it was a nice little nod to Virgil Brahms bringing in Dr. Leah Brahms' father, grandfather, great-grandfather, whatever. I uh-huh. thought that was that was a cool little little nod to the next gen. Exactly, and it might even be handy in the next
1: story. Maybe. I don't
0: know what you're talking about, Kane. <laughs> All right. Well, you want to go on to the next story? Let's. All right. So this one is entitled Inheritance. And it's also written by Dan Abnett and Ian Edginton. The penciler is Ron Randall. Inker is Al Williamson. Letterer is Phil Felix. Colorist Kevin Tinsley. Timothy Toohey is the editor. Bob Harris is editor-in-chief. And Chip Carter is Starfleet Operations. So, normally you're assumed that this is going to be a next-gen story, but it starts off on the bridge of a Constitution-class, original series-era starship. And we see Captain Leah Brahms giving the order that she needs more power. Brahms is clad in a very form-fitting gold miniskirt. And her chief engineer is none other than a red-shirted Geordie LaForge. Very confusing. LaForge tells her that he's giving her all they got. Suddenly, another voice interrupts this tense moment with a comment, Captain Brahms? The newcomer is none other than a next-generation-suited LaForge, smiling broadly now that he has caught Brahms playing with a holodeck version of himself. Now... Who is the kettle calling him what? The two... (laughs) Is that too much? No, go. (laughs) The two friends smile at the situation and they hug. Later, over dinner or drinks, the two are talking about the reason for their meeting. Brahms is giving a keynote speech at a theoretical propulsion seminar and she personally requested that Geordi attend. As they're having dinner, a Vulcan male joins them, and he makes some odd comments that Geordi keeps to himself. Once the Vulcan departs, Geordi tells Brahms that he thought it was odd that the Vulcan, who's supposed to be a propulsion engineer, thought that there was a difference between a torus and an AMR chamber. Everyone knows that these are the same thing. Brahms suggests that perhaps this is what Vulcans pass as humor. Later, Brahms returns to the holodeck with Geordie. There, she tells him that her grandfather, Virgil, recently passed away, and he gave her his notes for a theoretical propulsion system. She also shows him that the Federation used these designs to create the USS Confederate, and that it went missing nearly a 100 years ago. She thinks that the designs could be improved upon, and she's running these simulations to prove it. The two of them that they will agree to work on these designs together. The next day, the seminar is now over, and Jordy and Brahms sneak off in a runabout. They have configured the ship's engines with her grandfather's designs. Perhaps they can run a few tests instead of just the holodeck simulations. Before they get started, they're surprised to learn that the ship states that there are three life signs aboard. They turn around to investigate, and they find the Vulcan male from earlier. It turns out that he is actually a Romulan named Raddick. Suddenly, a huge Romulan battlecruiser decloaks right in front of the runabout. Doesn't look too good for Jordi and Brahms. They seem to be in some very hot water. Later, the two kidnapped engineers are taken to a secret Romulan base. And inside, they find none other than the USS Confederate Raddock tells them that they will perfect the hundred-year-old engine. At first, they refuse. Then, at disruptor point, and the reminder that the Romulans do not really care if Geordi's there, they start their work. Geordi rigs the engines to pulse in a pattern that matches his serial number. His hope is that a very special person on the other side of the neutral zone will notice it. Later, aboard the Enterprise D... Data and Riker are part of a search mission to try to find Brahms and the Forge. Data notices the strange pattern and he informs Riker. Riker tells him to go ahead and play out his hunch and to set a course. Meanwhile, aboard the Confederate, Reddick is impatient and he must know by now that he's being tricked. He threatens to kill both of them when Brahms sets the whole thing to auto destruct. The Romulans make a hasty retreat and Brahms and LaForge share their last few moments of life together. Words are lost to the two of them, and instead, they embrace, and they begin a long overdue and completely forbidden kiss, just as the engines start to glow red hot. In orbit, the Romulan ships depart the secret base as it's shown being completely destroyed. In the Enterprise transporter room, The nearly kissing engineers suddenly materialize on the pad. Picard, Data, Crusher, and Riker are all there to witness their friend's awkward return. Later, Brahms and LaForge are eating dinner in Ten Forward. They discuss that the propulsion system is just too dangerous. Picard allows Brahms to see some classified reports that prove that Brahms' own grandfather also thought the project was too dangerous. They end the book with a toast. To good friends. The end. Ah, Poor Geordie. <laughs> she is married, so it is completely... I know. Uh, I know. He's kind of out of line to keep trying to push this romantic thing. Well, well no, he's he's been a, a gentleman, quite frankly. He has
1: been. He has been. And they thought they were going to die, so it seemed like it was a mutual...
0: Right. You know, Everybody mutual knows attraction. that if you're about to die, you cheat on your spouse. Cool. No. that's That's... <laughs> No, I'm kidding. Yeah. No, I get it. He 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 can't help. You can't help who you fall fall for. in love with. Sure, I
1: think he's being quite a good gentleman up I until the do. end. So, well,
0: I don't even think the thing at the end is all that bad. They did think they were about to die.
1: Yeah, and I do like Riker's reaction in the transporter room and his uh, smirk
0: or whatever. Yeah, his
1: smirk and and uh, you know, Doctor Crusher's also got a big look, big smile on her face. It's like, ah, look, uh. Jordy's getting a little good. good, good for him. Are almost getting. Did they really kiss? I don't think they actually kissed. They don't show it on the panels, but oh, nope. dang! They are about a half inch away. <laughs> Jordy, you got you <laughs> got
0: to just lunge. You got to lunge. Oh well. Yeah, I just uh, I thought it was a little little much that all five of them made it to the transporter room in time to to see them return because yeah. you got you got to think that the Enterprise must have shown up just in the nick of time. You would think that. At least Riker, Picard, and Data would be on the bridge. You would think so, because you know, aren't they? Piloting aren't, the ship?
1: Aren't they actually in Romulan space? Oh yeah, yeah. So they had to cross the neutral zone to get them back. So isn't that kind of like a pretty
0: big deal? Right, and it's also maybe a uh, a call that's above Riker's pay grade, because <laughs> Riker's well, the one that orders Data to go ahead and set the course.
1: Yeah. Yep, I agree. Okay, so Starbase 313. Right. So is that just a random ID number, or is it actually because that's like the 313th Starbase that they've established? I don't know. I don't know either, but I'm kind of interested. So they came a long way since uh, Space Station K9 and, and even DS9. Although DS9 is like, it's considered deep space, right? So that's why right. the, it's a different numbering system. Than maybe Starbase three one three, which is a little closer into the Federation territory.
0: Right. I think it might just be a. I mean, it could be the three hundred thirteenth. But hmm. I mean, you it's would possible. think that they have quite a few space stations. They they always seem to run into one every other episode.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I I tend to think it's like like three hundred thirteenth. The only thing that I kind of wonder about this naming convention: deep space nine. Right. I was like, well. The Federation continues to expand, right? I mean, they expanded in next-gen time frame compared to Taz time frame. So what happens when there's enough expansion that, you know, Bajor isn't really considered Deep Space anymore? Are they going to rename Deep Space Nine to Starbase 330? (laughs) I don't know. I'm kind of wondering.
0: Oh, no. Anyway,
1: some pointless places my mind goes to at times. (laughs) I don't know. Good point. I knew for certain Professor Savile was a Romulan when when he showed emotion, when Brahms said she couldn't have dinner with him. Right. I suspected it when that whole thing about the gangly wrench being the same thing as the whatever, the AMR chamber. Right. I suspected something was weird there and they're trying to tell the reader something. But I definitely knew he was a Romulan when he was showing emotion.
0: Well, I beat you... As far as when I knew that he was a Romulan. Okay. Because <laughs> I saw the cover. <laughs> and it's <laughs> well, but, but, him in a, a Romulan costume. But I thought that was the... Okay. The, mo- the woman commander from the first one? No, no. I thought that was Tomalak. Oh, maybe. <laughs> but, well, whatever. <laughs> yeah, the one on the cover has the more... No, that's brow. that's Tomalak on the cover, right. I think. I, th- I think you're right, but... As soon as but this whatever. guy showed up, I was like, oh, he's a Romulan. Well, you, and then you... when they kept talking about the other stuff, I'm like, I already know. He's a Romulan. Quit, quit trying to beat it over my head. <laughs> <laughs> I know. See the cover. <sighs> Keep going.
1: <laughs> well, you knew, you knew it was a Romulan story because you knew that the Confederate was going to come back into it. So,
0: Yeah, which I let's, – let's talk about that real quick. I really liked that the Next Gen and the Taz stories were linked. I agree. It really made it feel like one long story versus two little abridged stories. Right. Yeah, which had nothing to do with
1: each other. Right. Yeah. I do like that, too.
0: Yeah, I liked it a lot. And it didn't really seem overly forced. I mean... No. No, it's actually having
1: that ship be the, the only common thread between the two stories
0: I thought worked very well. And that it was Brahms' grandfather. Well, yeah, but it's really... Okay. That, okay, that was so the maybe one part two, that but, I thought was maybe stretching, but, but I mean, if he was an engineer, her father might be an engineer, and she's an engineer, so it kind of made sense. Yeah. No, I liked it a lot. I thought that was – I hope they do that more in these uh, Unlimited.
1: Right. But just don't beat us over the head with it. You know, right. Just d- don't make it so forced. This was yeah. not forced. It, this wasn't forced. It, I think it really worked well.
0: And I really like the first few pages where you don't know really what's going on because you don't know – you don't know that that's leah brahms on the first page because she obviously doesn't really look like the actress only in the face a little bit because not the body because i mean she was
1: a cute little thing in the show but she is again stoned hot in this
0: one especially in that Taz miniskirt oh baby Man, that's probably why there was no captain, women captains, because if they were wearing that... <laughs> he would be distracted. A lot of people were distracted. <laughs> yeah, so uh,
1: she, so the, the, I think there are two different... I think both stories had different artists. Yeah. But I think they both had the marching orders, make the women as hot as you can, because they did.
0: Well, isn't that comic book 101?
1: Well, but not always. I mean, but yeah, yeah that's true. I mean, because they know who's going to be buying the books. It's going to be guys, you know, teenage guys often.
0: Man, so. that's very that's, – I can't believe you just said that. Kid.
1: I said that. I, and I'll say it again.
0: <laughs> they know their audience.
1: So <laughs> – well, not all their audience. I mean, because there's old guys like us reading these things too. But right, right. I don't think it's as common.
0: Right. So, no, she looked, she looked uh, very good in that little skirt.
1: Oh, yeah. And she looks very good later in other outfits that are a little bit more TNG, time frame So I thought the artwork was quite good. Right. And those Romulan ships, man, they were nice looking. Yeah, especially when that one is decloaking in front of the runabout. Right. And they got that, that really cool. looking
0: thing, right? Where it kind of warbles into right. from invisible to visible. Yep. Right. Yeah, fantastic.
1: Yeah, really nice. Nice work.
0: And the the you know the Confederate I thought looked good and you know I don't know if the the sizing proportions right but I liked that it showed you know how big those nacelles are compared to a, a person standing next to them where it showed the people walking about oh right underneath it. underneath it right which you know from seeing the you know the only frame of reference I really have for a Constitution class ship to what a person looks like on the outside of it would be. The motion picture when right. Kirk and them are walking on the hull, right. And this awesome this seems size. to fit that that size ratio pretty well. Yeah, I thought it was good. It's good. Like
1: I, I thought it was odd they had in the background a full size Romulan ship. At least in one of the shots that that shot you're talking about with the little people, right? Uh, you know, walking around where the uh, ship is. I thought it was odd that they had a, a a warbird in there.
0: Well, it's a hangar bay. So maybe they were... Well, they were working those, on it, too.
1: Maybe, but, I mean, that's a big ship. I mean, right. if you ever, you ever see the Enterprise-D compared to Enterprise, it's like double the size.
0: Well, maybe it's one of their little shuttles, because don't they have little shuttles that... No, oh, maybe,
1: smaller but... Smaller ships that are kind of yeah, the but, same shape. Well, but that is identical. Right. The configuration is identical to the full-size one, if that is indeed some kind of smaller ship. Right. Which I suppose is possible, but... I don't remember seeing the exact same design just in a smaller size before, but eh, maybe. Right. So I just thought I, it was odd.
0: I think I've complained about this before. I just don't buy that you would have a chamber this big, pressurized and filled with atmosphere. It just seems right. like a huge waste because you're not really doing anything to warrant why you would need the whole thing in a environment and right. not just in a dry dock somewhere. Right. Aside from you get to see the cool pictures of people walking underneath it and stuff like that. Which is cool. Yep. It As is you cool. you pointed out.
1: It is cool. Yeah.
0: Just doesn't make sense. Right. All right. Um, what else you got?
1: Uh, really nothing. I, I don't have much to complain about. I think it held together pretty well. I thought it was pretty convenient how they were able to rig it at the end. But, hey, you, you expected that was going to happen.
0: Right. And it's it's really destroyed and not... Maybe in an alternate universe or whatever. exactly right. But we thought the same thing about the Tholian web defiant once upon a time, and we've right. seen that it's popped up a few times. So right, who knows? This may not be the last time we see the Confederate.
1: Perhaps, but they it did
0: seem like they tried to blow it up. Yeah, this one the... seems pretty pretty finite, but you never know. Yeah, know. Never know. Never um, know. Out of the four, this was my favorite. Yeah, and then. I think the, the Taz one of this and the Next Generation one of the last one maybe tied for second and third. And then definitely the Ahora uh, story in the first one was my least favorite. Stinky! <laughs> Thumb down. Uh, in my opinion. Well, what's your order, real quick?
1: Uh, pretty much yours, but I kind of like these two. Uh, so I kind of like issue, th- issue four, period. So right. I like those. I think those two stories go together well. They they stand well on their own. I, I like those the best. And probably if I had to pick, yes, yeah, sure, the next gen story in issue four, and then I think issue three was just
0: overall not as good. Agreed. And then I did I did like on the cover. Uh, I, I, let me just finish. Yeah, I agree with you. But uh do you think it's a, it's kind of weird on the cover uh how they just say plus next generation or plus original series it almost yes. seems like a throwaway line. Exactly. I think I would rather see an amalgam of the two generations on the cover, right? Since the cover doesn't necessarily have to be part of the story, you know, it's just a poster type thing. You could have you know a little bit of both storylines in the same cover. Well, you can, but it gets kind of busy. Does not It might be difficult to
1: manage. I don't know. Because in this case, both covers had very much tried to communicate what the stories were about. For one of the stories? Well, yeah, for one of the stories. Right. And I think if you tried to communicate that much about the stories and tried to cover both Next Gen and Taz, it would be just too busy a cover. Right. Although, it'd be nice if they could do it. Yeah, but that but that they've definitely established that pattern, and they're alternating too, right? So they're they're playing it even on both sides. They're not giving bloody favoritism to one sub franchise or the other, right?
0: All right. Well, then if uh, if that's it, we can go ahead and close up shop, and we're going to be back next week with Starfleet Academy four, five, and six. Cool. Get to see what's happening back with those new characters, right? So we won't be back with Star Trek Unlimited until episode 171. Just to kind of put it in perspective. Okay. When you can start getting ready to re- read issue number five. There you go. Cool. All right. So until then, we'll close up shop and talk to everybody next week. Great. Thanks for joining us, everybody,
1: on The Review. Later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. second name book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. let get the hell out of here.